welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mantech. How are you, Katie? I'm, I'm good. You? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Were you trying to ask me how I'm doing before I beat you to I it? I was going to ask you how you were doing. Yeah. That's but, two That's two friends just showing what friendship is about, rushing to ask the other how they're right. doing. Too what a model concern. we are. But I see you're back. I'm back. Yes, I'm back in New York City. Is that because you wanted to mourn the Queen in Canada and the Commonwealth? You wanted to get in some morning time in Canada with your, <laughs> oh, breath, yeah. with your Commonwealth brethren and sisters. Yes. Well, I did get that morning time in. It, yeah. was, uh, it was some heavy morning. Could, did you feel, I mean, I'm not even kidding. Was there, could you tell that there were people in mourning when you were out and about? When I was out in the boot, as we say in Canada, I did not see any visible mourning. But okay. I don't know. I'm sure people are. Look, you know, like the Queen yeah, means yeah. a lot to some people, you know, so. Uh, but I did not, I did not personally come across. Okay, yeah. Well, you're not in England, but I didn't know how far the the tentacles of the of the Queen reached or the monarchy. Well, my grandmother, my grandmother was uh, British. She's from Manchester, oh. and um, my only memory of the Queen is I'm pretty sure, unless I, I, she came to Vancouver in the '80s, and I remember she drove by and waved through a car window. We all lined up to see it. Wow, that's that's you, my wow, only memory of the great. Queen. Great, like you went out to see her. Wow. Yeah, we saw in the street, and then she drove by, and we saw like a hand wave, and that was. They, she does a very weird. I have to watch the video again, but I was watching some videos of her as a child, and it's a very weird wave. It was like, hmm. like a floppy weird wave. A floppy wave. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like that or something. I got. We'll, we'll have to go back to the videotape for next yeah. uh, next week. Yeah. And put it in slow mo. Yeah, just to see the flop, the full floppiness in motion. The royal flop. All right. Well, should we get to it? Our four yeah, let's basic do it. Let's food get groups? to the four basic food groups. For, so for today's Democrats suck. You know, last on the last episode, a uh, friend of show, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, talked about an effort to get the uh, to, for basically to ban dark money funding during uh, Democratic primary elections. And uh, she was uh, arguing for that at The Nation. There was a, a petition. She argued for that at The Washington Post. Uh, there was a resolution and it would have uh, blocked uh, dark money funding during any and all Democratic primary elections. It also would have set up ways to investigate dark money groups and discipline DNC members for accepting donations from anonymous donors. And it was authored by Nevada Democratic Party Chair Judith Whitmer and presented by her and Jim Zogby, who's the head of the Arab American Institute and also a, a an active member of the Democratic Party. And he's on a bunch of different committees. Uh, he was a Sanders guy. So guess what, Aaron? I'm sure they they approved all this. Now dark money is banned for good. The Democratic Party is now dark money free. I wish. They rejected the proposal. And Ugh. I know, major spoiler alert. Shocking. Yeah, shocking, right? So just so people have a sense of what goes on and the types of things that Zogby and Whitmer were trying to get rid of, uh, Zogby wrote in a in a piece at the nation after the bill, after the resolution was rejected, despite the 2020 democratic platform directly calling for a ban on unregulated non-reportable expenditures from PACs and 501c4 groups, this year alone, we saw tens of millions of dark money dollars spent targeting progressive candidates across the country, including races in Ohio, North Carolina, Texas, Oregon, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, and more. For example, $6 million in dark money was spent to defeat former Maryland Representative Donna Edwards, more than $4 million to defeat Representative Andy Levin of Michigan, and another $4 million to defeat Jessica Cisneros in Texas. Even progressives who won, Representative Rashida Tlaib, Representative Cori Bush, 
and Pennsylvania State Senator Summer Lee had to withstand an onslaught of a combined $10 million in negative ads designed to tarnish their reputations. So, Democrats, you really suck. Again, I'm, I'm also shocked that a platform pledge did not turn into a concrete reality. That's right. another first time that's ever, yeah. ever happened. Sure. Who, who saw that coming? All right. So for Republicans suck. Well, listen, Katie, you know, you are very passionate about uh, abortion rights. Well, guess what? You're in luck because Lindsey Graham is a compromise for you. OK, yes. he's willing to meet you at 15 weeks after that. He's proposing now abortion is banned. What do you say? Well, what do you what do you see what Lindsey Graham has to say right. first? Yeah, let me hear because I don't want to rush to judgment. I want to hear him. Yes. Make case. I want to hear him. So make Lindsey case. Graham, Lindsey Graham, uh, trying to uh, bring everyone together, meet, uh, search for a meaningful compromise to the abortion issue. Has proposed an abortion ban after 15 weeks, but as he wrapped up his news conference announcing this this proposal, he was questioned by a woman who suffered some serious complications in her pregnancy after 15 weeks and uh the exchange is very interesting let's uh, let's go to it what would you say to somebody like me who found out that their son had an anomaly that would make him incompatible life in 16 weeks i have regular appointments i did everything i'm right and at 16 weeks we found out that our son would likely not yep. live when he was born he lived for eight days yeah he bled from every orifice of his body but we were allowed to make that Here's what I would say. The world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain. And and we're saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions for life of the mother and rape and incest. But uh well, ma'am, this this there were fifty five thousand abortions uh, after the fifteen week period, and I think we're resolved to get America back in line with the rest of the world, and we won't know where America is until we vote, until we debate, and so to my democratic friends, you're going around calling all of us every name you can think of. We're a bunch of wackos. Your idea is wacko, not ours. Let's vote. Let's vote. Give me a chance to vote on this bill. We'll take her considerations and we'll vote. And I guarantee if we have a debate on the floor of the United States Senate where we can explain what we're doing versus what they would do, we'll do really well with the American people. And over time, God willing, we're going to be like the rest of the world and not like Iran at the federal level when it comes to abortion. We're going nowhere. Thank you very much. Don't be Iranian when it comes to abortion is basically his argument. That's the message, yeah. I mean, look, he's a neocon, so he's obsessed with Iran. So yeah, everything course, has yeah. to be tied back to Iran somehow. I like the way he does that. He ties a bow yeah. around his terrible domestic <laughs> and uh, international politics. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, he's trying to make an argument that uh, European abortion policies are less permissive than American ones. That's an interesting question. So comparing the gestational period cutoffs is something that uh, Don Moynihan wrote about at his Substack, donmoynihan.substack.com. And it turns out that the difference between, so the argument is that American cutoffs have been more permissive 
than our European counterparts. But the truth is that there's a lot more flexibility in Europe than there is here, and they give a lot more power to the women to decide. So even though like in Germany, then there is a nominal 12 week limit, but all these exceptions are given. And one exception, for instance, is quote, from the pregnant person's point of view. Um, if, if from the pregnant person's point of view, abortion is necessary to avert a danger to the life or grave injury to the mental or physical health of the pregnant person, taking into her account present and future living conditions. So that gives women a lot more, obviously, uh, autonomy and flexibility. So even that metric is misleading. And of course, I don't think that that should be the metric. But even by the logic of Lindsey Graham, it's not true. Well, yeah, one more reason why Lindsey Graham and Republicans suck. Yeah. Aaron, wasn't the whole logic, and if we're talking about Republican logic, wasn't there logic to say that this should be a state's issue and now they're making it a federal issue? That's a great point. Yeah, this is all about states' rights. But now Lindsey Graham is trying to uh, come in and bring the federal government back in while still, I think, also giving states the right to uh, overrule his own proposal. I believe that's still a part of his thing. So. Uh, he's being very tricky here, and uh, I think people see past it. Yeah, but, uh, so. you know, the one comment uh, on this that I, I saw that was really funny comes from uh, Felix Biederman of Chapo Trap House. And this is what he said about Lindsey Graham being the uh, voice who comes in and tries to save Republicans on this issue. Because as we saw in Kansas recently, this has hurt Republicans at the polls. So this is what Felix said about Lindsey Graham trying to come in and mitigate that damage. They saw they were getting obliterated on abortion and decided to send in their secret weapon, a deeply closeted 67-year-old with no children and the personality of an elementary school theater director who tells kids they're too fat to play any. I mean, that's kind of perfect. <laughs> yeah. I actually did a mashup video once of him when he was defending Kavanaugh, and he seemed like such a, a showbiz mom and a stage mom that I, I did a mashup of him and you'll be swell, you'll be great, gonna have the whole world on a plate, starting here, starting now, starting everything's coming up roses, which is from Gypsy. Mm. And it's about, it's the mother singing about how the career of her daughter's going to take off. So <laughs> I gotta release that again. Did you get the vibe a little bit of Lindsay with flanked by all these women as the same as? Well, you gotta tell us what that is because for people who are not watching and just listening. Frank so... Avignale, Leo, and Catch Me If You Can with all the... Stuart, uh, flight attendants. Flight attendants. Yeah, that is good. Go back to the to the comparison point. Yeah, he is. That is a that is Lindsey Graham flanked by many a women. Yep, looking good. All right. So what do we have for? Isn't that weird? So for isn't that weird? We have an interesting story that I found, of course, at the New York Post. Nursing home hire stripper for seniors in wheelchairs. Colon. We are very sorry. Um, now, let me before we play the actual video of it, let me just set up what happened. So uh, I'm going to read from the New York Post because they always have great text. This probably wasn't a proper setting to set pulses racing. A nursing home has been forced to apologize for hiring a stripper to perform for senior citizens in wheelchairs. The Taoyuan Veterans Home, a state-run facility for retired Army personnel in Taiwan, paid the adult entertainer for a steamy show to celebrate Mid-Autumn Festival, an important holiday in Chinese culture whereby people gather to celebrate the rice and wheat harvest of the season. Uh, video of the raunchy performance was filmed by an attendee before it was posted to social media and quickly went viral. And the nursing home did concede that the uh, dancer's actions were too enthusiastic and fiery. 
So let's take a look at, at what at this video. So she's leaning over a guy in a wheelchair. He has his hand on her breast. He's twerking. She does a kind of belly dance move. Then she kisses the top of his head. She's masked the whole time. I think that's great, honestly. It's weird, but maybe weird in a good way. What do you think, yeah, Aaron? It's, it's definitely weird, but I, I'm for it, you know? Yeah. Nursing home life is tough. I've, right. uh, I've spent a lot of time in nursing homes, and it's uh, it looks like the, uh, the residents there are having a good time. So, yeah. you know, let's let them have a little fun. So isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that weirdly great? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So for Isn't That Terrible, we're going back to Republican land. There's been this scandal engulfing the, uh, you know, Hall of Fame NFL quarterback, uh, Brett Favre, who was caught taking money that was intended for welfare recipients in Mississippi, getting paid a million dollars for speeches that he never actually made and keeping the money. And uh, this is a big scandal, which has already, you know, caused him a lot of controversy. But now some new stuff has come out where it gets even worse, where it turns out that even more money was steered in Brett Favre's, uh, Brett Favre's direction. And he admitted it. He knew this all along. He has said that he didn't know he was taking money away from welfare recipients in Mississippi. Well, some texts have come out that are pretty much a smoking gun, and they're between uh, Brett Favre and a woman named Nancy New, who is the head of a nonprofit in Mississippi that handles this money for welfare recipients. And they have this crazy exchange. And what they're discussing here is uh, a plan to basically use welfare money to give uh, millions of dollars to a school in Mississippi where Brett Favre's daughter is attending and playing volleyball. And they want to use this money to build a new volleyball stadium. And so Brett Favre says this to uh, the director of this welfare nonprofit. If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? And Nancy New responds, no, we never have had that information publicized. I understand you being uneasy about that, though. Let's see what happens on Monday with the conversation with some of the folks at Southern. That's the university. Maybe it will click with them, hopefully. Uh, and Brett says, OK, thanks. And uh, Nancy New says, wow, just got off the phone with Phil Bryant. And that at the time is the governor of Mississippi. He is on board with us. We will get this done. And Brett Favre responds, awesome. I needed to hear that for sure. So he's he's confirming with her via text message that if he takes their money, steals it from welfare recipients, is the media going to find out? And they're basically confirming that with the uh, consent of the then Republican governor, Phil Bryant, that uh, no, the media will not find out. And then Brett Favre is relieved. And what's crazy is this story also touches on a theme we've been sounding off on on this show for multiple weeks now, which is that the governor of Mississippi Tate Reeves is such a loathsome person that were the most recent thing is that he fired the prosecutor who was looking into all this and was actually issuing subpoenas in this case. In an apparent effort uh, by Reeves, the current governor, to protect the former governor, his predecessor, Phil Bryant. More like Taint Reeves. Taint, absolutely. Reeves is tainted. Very much so, yeah. It's a nice combo. Terrible Republicans suck. Absolutely. They always work so well.
So, Aaron, there's some news out of Syria, right? Yes. And Syria is important to discuss because it gets totally overlooked, even though the U.S. currently has uh, somewhat around 1,000 troops inside the country occupying a large part of territory that is denying Syria access to its own fuel and wheat. And it's also causing violence. I mean, there have been strikes between uh, the U.S. and allies of the Syrian government, especially Iranian forces inside Syria. And this is a very dangerous situation when you have all these foreign countries on battlefield, including also Russia, where there also have been some close brushes between the U.S. and uh, Russia. And that's very dangerous because, you know, the world's top two nuclear powers that we're seeing in Ukraine fighting against each other on the same battlefield could lead to a major escalation. On top of all the harm that this is causing for the people of Syria, who are suffering after living under a 10-year dirty war that the U.S. was very involved in by arming an insurgency. So the latest news comes from the U.N., and they're talking about another aspect of Syria that gets totally overlooked, which is that Israel has been bombing Syria just at will, almost weekly. Israel carries out a bombing of Syria. And uh, this is the latest news, according to the U.N., uh, from a new report. According to the U.N., an Israeli bombing of Syria's main airport in June quote, led to considerable damage to infrastructure and meant the suspension of UN deliveries of humanitarian assistance to Syrians uh, in need for at least two weeks or for nearly two weeks. So basically, Israel in June bombed Syria's main airport in Damascus. And not only did it shut down the airport for a while until it could be repaired, but also this cut off the delivery of vital aid to Syrians in need. And the report also gives a picture of just how bad things are in Syria right now where there's just been an outbreak of cholera in some areas. And overall, this is what the UN says about how Syria is doing uh, after nearly after more than a decade of war. So the UN says that in Syria, the economic and humanitarian situation is at its worst since the start of the conflict in 2011, with an estimated 14.6 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. And they talk about an 800% rise in food prices since 2020, 800% just in the last two years, which is just extraordinary. And this rise in food prices inside Syria is a direct result of U.S. sanctions, because since 2019, 2020, the U.S. has intensified its sanctions on Syria with something called the Caesar Act, which are really the most crippling sanctions in the world. Caesar, uh, up there with- I don't even know her. Uh, up there with the blockade of of Cuba, and what's this is an, this is not even concealed. U.S. officials have bragged about this. So there's a uh, official who served under Trump named Andrew Tabler, uh, top official in the State Department responsible for Syria, and he wrote in 2021, U.S. sanctions introduced in 2019 have dramatically increased economic pressure on Assad, and that means economic pressure on Syrian people because Assad himself, the leader, is not personally impacted by these sanctions, and have helped lead to a roughly 250% decrease in the exchange rate between the Syrian pound and the U.S. dollar since late 2019, the severe depletion of government coffers, and corresponding cuts in, in government subsidies that have exacerbated fuel and food shortages for everyday Syrians. So this is a U.S. You're official- You're quoting who, him, right? I'm quoting him. I'm okay. quoting him. Um, the sanctions have led to corresponding cuts in government subsidies that have exacerbated fuel and food shortages for everyday Syrians. So this is someone who helped implement this policy of U.S. sanctions 
it, admitting, I think in a boastful way. Yeah, bragging. That um, U.S. sanctions have led to food, uh, fuel and food shortages for everyday Syrians. So this is a, these, uh, this suffering in Syria is a deliberate result of U.S. policy. Right. And as you pointed out, we always pretend that these are san- that sanctions are hitting the government and the people who really suffer, of course, are the most vulnerable people. Absolutely. Every time. Non-governmental people, just in general. Every time. Do you want to explain that you said government instead of regime since you were quoting him? Well, you know, it's like we only use the word in the West. We only use, use the word regime for governments we're trying to overthrow. Right. So we never talk about the Israeli regime, even though they're right. ruling over... Uh, millions of Palestinians who never voted for them and whose land Israel has stolen. We don't call them the Israeli regime. We don't call the Biden regime or the Trump regime. Uh, we don't say um, the, the Saudi regime. regime. The Saudi regime. I mean, some people say, I mean, Saudi regimes may be a little more permissible, but I just think it's it's a term that's reserved for official bad guys. So, right. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Unless we apply it equally, I just don't want to use it. Yeah, I agree. I just want people to know it's like if you were quoting him that then government would have been in in brackets. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I, you know, he probably watches the show. Doesn't want to. be I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes. Yes, we'd have to issue a massive correction. Yeah. Sanctions. Murderous sanctions. And that's why you know I always say for people who call you know people like myself an Assadist for criticizing these policies. I call them a sadist for supporting these policies because that's yeah. what this policy is. It's sadism. Yeah. And people really don't realize that people are dying because of this. No, no. Um, I have some friends from Syria who just recently came back from visiting their families and there's just some terrible stories. And we don't hear about it because we're not allowed to hear about victims of our crimes, only victims right. of other people's crimes. So Ukrainians suffering under Russia, we hear about that all day, but we can't hear about people who are suffering from crimes that we're committing, only crimes that are being committed by our enemies. All righty. Well, we have a great show for you today. We are welcoming back into the fold. Well, it makes it sound like we kicked him out or something. He left on his own volition. He paused <laughs> his participation to work on a book. The inimitable Matthew Taibbi. The one and only. One and only. Great to have him back. Great well, let's to go to back. it. Let's get to it. Welcome back, Matt Taibbi. So excited to have you back. So excited to be back. Hello, Katie. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? Good, but we've been missing you. The people are clamoring for you. They they are. No, they they are. Not as much as I thought they would. (laughs) Or I should say they're happier with Aaron than I thought they'd be. Uh, Which is not an insult to you, Aaron. I I actually, I I was pretty sure they'd be happy with Aaron. So the the lack of clamoring, um, (laughs) look, I'm not going to say I'm I'm not taking it hard, but uh, but it's 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 interesting. But congratulations to you both. It's been it's been it's been great watching the show. I've gotten I've gotten death threats. You know, Uh, (laughs) I've gotten threats like we're not going to let you live your life until Taibi comes back. You know, it's it's been it's been horrible for me. It's been a nightmare. <laughs> the Taibbi terrorists. What kind of would you would you want, Taibbi? Like, what would make you feel validated? Uh, at this point, uh, I think va- validation is a, is a distant, right. unachievable goal. Right. At this point, I'm just moving uh, moving along as, as a passenger in the train of history. You know. No. I mean, you would just want weekly, like people begging you regularly to come back. I really, I really don't. I, you know. It, uh, I'm I'm, a, I'm probably a little happier than than I was when we last checked in, and a lot of that has to do with 
no longer really paying as much attention to what people say online. Mm. It's funny, there were a couple of news stories last week about the prevalence of fake accounts on Twitter. I don't know if you saw either of those. There were there was an amusing story about Disney chief Bob Iger oh, uh, talking about when he um, when they were trying to purchase Twitter and how the the price ended up being driven down because a substantial portion of the accounts were were fake. And then there was another study that showed that like sixty to eighty percent of the Ukraine uh, Ukraine related tweets are fake. And uh, you know I don't know about you, but this dovetails with my whole experience with Twitter, which was like, it was fun. And and then one day in, in early 2016, it just started being this sort of bot infested hell. Is that your experience or, or is, is that just me? I guess that was a turning point, right? 2016, because for, I mean, it probably was for different reasons for, di- for us. Like, although no, we probably overlapped because for me, there was a lot of Bernie stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was a toxic Bernie bro. Right, right, yeah. There, there, I, I remember vividly. Remember the story that broke with um, with Ben Carson believing that the pyramids were grain storage yeah. facilities, and I, I remember having this great night alone in a, in a, a, a New Hampshire hotel room because I was covering the campaign, and just Twitter was just bursting with real people with funny jokes. Right. Um, all across the political spectrum. Clearly, this was a real experience uh, that everybody was having. It was all very lighthearted. And then within like a couple of months, it, it was just full of all these people who were saying all exactly the same thing. Um, it, it was all very directed at the, the Bernie phenomenon, which at the time I was only like tangentially part of, you know, and uh, and yet it was uh, it was very unpleasant. And then it's only gotten worse since then. I mean, now and you, uh, I don't know. It's pretty nasty. I mean, the real people are really nasty, you know. Every day, if you want, you know, if you're somewhat of a public figure, you have an opportunity to read something really terrible said about you, you know. And that's just that takes its toll after a while. Even if you don't take these people seriously, just the accumulation of negativity has to have some impact after a long addiction uh, to to responding to people i think i've i finally kicked that and it's uh, i'm a much happier human being so oh, congratulations yeah, yeah i appreciate yeah. it yeah we'll yeah. see I mean, probably by next week i'll be like yeah, right. tweeting <laughs> three in the morning so yeah. but uh yeah like we'll pulling near a tandem <laughs> yeah right exactly exactly <laughs> So there's a lot of stories because you're a very prolific uh, writer. And so there are a lot of stories that we could talk about. Do you want to start with one that you have coming out? And maybe by the time we release this, it'll be out. But about the Trump raid? Yeah, it, it actually, it's not so much about the Trump raid as about this phenomenon of taint teams. Right. And, and, there, and there's kind of a, a larger issue with the whole war on terror bureaucracy of the Justice Department, um, which has, in a variety of directions, uh, assumed or asserted powers that previously belonged to other branches uh, of government. So you think about um, the decision that was made during the Obama years to assassinate Anwar al-Awlaki 
and there was a famous speech by uh, Eric Holder where he said, uh, uh, well, due process doesn't have to mean judicial process. So uh, essentially what he was saying was, you, you know, due process doesn't have to include the, you know, the person that we've decided to execute. You know, we don't have to have an adversarial proceeding where there's a trial or anything like that. We can have a process internally within the executive branch um, and come to a decision, and that would satisfy, uh, you know, the Fifth Amendment requirement, or I guess it's the Sixth Amendment requirement. No, Fifth Amendment requirement uh, to due process. And there's been a whole lot of stuff like that where they just sort of say, you know, we no longer are going to do it the way um, it, things used to be done. And one and one of the big ways where they've done this is with this phenomenon of taint teams. Uh, you probably read about this there in the Mar-a-Lago raid where you, when they went in and seized all this stuff, they had these people called filter agents. And long before Trump was ever an issue, uh, the government started doing this thing where when they raided especially like a law firm they uh, they would get a very broadly construed search warrant go in basically take everything and first of all think about the implications of that right like if you're the southern district of new york and you and you raid a new york city law firm that has lots and lots of cases before um uh, before you uh, and you take all of the files of all of these criminal defendants with all their secrets and all their concerns and all, all the notes about their trial strategies. And you have this thing called a filter team that reads through all this stuff and theoretically decides whether it's privileged or not and, and can be passed on to the prosecutors. In reality, what all it is is just an end run around a search warrant, you know, through, through this method, the government gets to take lots and lots of stuff that it would never get permission to look at otherwise. And, um, and they've been doing this for 20 years in all kinds of cases involving all, all sorts of people, Medicare fraudsters, um, you know, drug dealers, the lawyers for drug dealers, uh, the lawyers for the lawyers of drug dealers, you know, and then people connected with Trump most recently. But this has been going on a long time. There's, it's, it's a phenomenon that's got a lot of lawyers freaked out. And it's kind of similar to the Snowden story in the sense that it's just this huge uh, phenomenon of unregulated searching that they just decided to do without any kind of legal, you know, ruling. Before we get more into the Trump story, can you just talk about Lynn Stewart? Cause that's a case that you, you talk about in your piece. And also I think that it's important for leftists to realize that this is not something that only affects Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's a completely common misconception and, you know, we get that all the time, obviously. So Lynn Stewart was, um, a famous kind of radical lawyer, right, in the in the mold of William Kunstler. Uh, she was famous for representing, you know, a bank robber from Weather, Weather Underground, uh, a Black Panther who hijacked an airplane, 
Uh, and early in the 90s, when the, uh, the famous uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman, you know, the blind Sheikh, didn't have counsel, and uh, Ramsey Clark, who was the attorney general once upon a time, kind of a famous liberal, uh, went to uh, Lynn Stewart and said, you, you know, would you like to represent this person? No, no, no one else will do it. And she did. She she ended up representing the the sheik. Now, it's a complicated story because the government during that time imposed a series of rules on prisoners like you weren't allowed to listen to the radio. Um, <laughs> they, they they basically prohibited any kinds of visitors except for immediate family and attorneys. Uh, and they, they also gave the government the power to monitor the attorney-client uh, conversations that went on in prison, which, you know, is crazy on its face, right? That was one of the first really, really serious indications that they were going to throw out the Bill of Rights after 9-11. Uh, Lynn Stewart basically... Uh, communicated a press release on behalf of the blind sheik uh, in which he instructed followers back in his native Egypt that they may want to consider reconsider their ceasefire with the government of Hosni Mubarak. Uh, and um, as a result of those comments, the government charged her as a material accessory to terrorism. Uh, this at the time was a, a case that was sort of earth shattering to defense lawyers everywhere. I, I talked to a lawyer actually just before we got on the air uh, who, who is a pr pretty well-known attorney in, in New York who's like, you know, that case blew my fucking mind. Like we were all, we were all freaked out about that. And one of and they raided her office, and this was one of the first instances where they used these these taint teams. They took all the materials, not just you know involving her or involving Raman, but all of all the attorneys in her firm and all of their clients. And they had they all had cases that involved the Southern District of New York, which was doing the investigating. So even though theoretically there was this quote unquote Chinese wall that separated, separated what the government was looking at from the actual prosecutors of Lynn Stewart's case, again, you, you know, you have, you, you have the government that's looking at all these files of criminal defendants, you know, getting access to secrets that it would never, never otherwise have access to. I didn't realize this until I read your piece that like, John Ashcroft announced that he was going after Lynn Stewart on David Letterman. Yeah, if you remember, Letterman had a lot of fun with John Ash Ashcroft's rendition of um, Where the, the Eagles Eagle Store. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, was making a lot of fun of him. And Ashcroft uh, decided uh, to go on Letterman. And it was, a, it, was, it was a big deal at the time because this was sort of somebody who had legendarily no sense of humor and it was thought to be a big concession for Ashcroft to go on the air. In fact, they ended up using this highly rated episode to announce that they were pressing charges against Lynn Stewart. Um, and 
after the announcement, you can hear the, the, you know, the sort of excited applause of even Letterman's audience back then, right? Like, because in that atmosphere, you know, anybody who was connected to anybody who was even theoretically a terrorist got aroused the condemnation, you know, even of people who considered themselves liberals at the time. I think we, we, so, some of us don't remember how crazy those, that, that time period was, but it's, it, it absolutely was. Lynn Stewart too. She was, she was elderly. She was in her seventies yeah. when she was in prison and she only was released after I think like four years because she got breast cancer and she died a few years later. Yeah. They initially sentenced her to 28 months and the government thought that wasn't a long enough sentence. So they reapplied to have her resentenced and they got 10 years, um, which of which you're right. She only served, I think like three and a half, uh, before the, uh, she ended up so sick from cancer that, it, you know, they, they released her. She died shortly thereafter. Um, but I know I talked to her son who said, you know, I, even my mother, I think, was sort of Pollyannish about what being a lawyer meant. Uh, yeah. You know, I think there was there was a widespread belief that you can you can kind of push the envelope a little bit because we're all playing a game with rules. And after 9-11, you know, things change. We stop playing a game with rules. We, you know, the government is no longer messing around. They, they don't care whether you're, you follow the letter of the law. They're, they're not interested in having a hearing with a judge to decide whether or not uh, you exactly follow the rules. You know, they're, they're, they're just gonna use all these tools that they have available to them to punish you. And there, there's there's some amazing stuff, you know, when they do these raids with the taint teams, there's a procedure that comes afterwards where where you have to legally inform every single one of your clients that this breach took place. So it's almost like as if you've been hacked and essentially a, a judge asks each one of the clients, you know, are you aware of this? Are you sure you want to continue being represented by this firm? And they do this to prevent anybody from claiming later that you know there was prejudice against them in some other case. But it makes it very hard for anybody who's been raided like this to stay in business because you know who who would who would want to be represented by a firm you know that the government's um, had a peek at their files, right? Yeah. And so the, all of this all undermines attorney-client privilege, right? Oh my God! Yeah, it it completely undermines attorney-client pr privilege, and then you know, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that you know Supreme that attorney-client privilege is the oldest uh, and most basic uh, right to confidentiality that we have in, in our system, um, in our and and this completely undermines it because uh, you know the the, the government doesn't even have to make a showing of probable cause. They don't have to make any showing at all. They, they, they just take the stuff and then they sort of assert on their own authority that they get to look at this and don't worry, trust us. We won't use any of this information. We're the government. We're, of course, we would never abuse uh, any of this knowledge that we've got. And yeah, it's, so it's crazy. And, and you know, think about it. If you uh, have an attorney 
who works at a big law firm and that law firm also has an attorney who represents somebody who's controversial in some way, you now have to worry that, you know, one day the, the FBI is going to show up and take all the files from, from, from that law firm, which has happened over and over and over again, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a bunch of different jurisdictions. Have you followed the um, African People's Socialist Organization raid at all? I haven't. Uh, it oh, sounds yeah. interesting. What, what, what happened there? Well, we actually had the chairman of it, Ishatella, uh, Amali Ishatella, and they raided their offices with like stun grenades and they showed up at his house and at his offices and uh, they put him in... Uh, plastic, you know, handcuffs, zip ties, right? Zip ties. Yeah. They wanted to have him sit on the curb. They jammed their phones. They said that they were in, they were what unindicted co-conspirators in a case against a Russian national, a Russian national who was accused of, uh, like trying to influence us politics, meddle in us politics. It was kind of like a, it was a classic Russia gate indictment, basically this like, uh, Russian national, he, he's not in the us anymore, but it was accused of giving, some money to some political groups in the U.S. And so this African People's Socialist Party were named as unindicted co-conspirators and they got raided over it. And it was amazing. Like it got very little, there was no outrage really at all from anybody, but this is like an elderly couple being, you know, like weapons being pointed at them and a raid, like kind of like what happened to Roger Stone. Like a sense, like the the laser was pointed at his chest. He thought he was going to be killed. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds nuts, but it's totally in character with the way we think of, uh, you know, the, the federal government now. I mean, once upon a time, if you talk to white collar lawyers, they'll, they'll say, you know, back in the 90s, say, like, if one of your clients was targeted by the government, you know, they would ask for a bunch of documents. They may even search your home, but there would be this quasi-collegial situation where, you know, you would get the opportunity to send them, give them a list of stuff that you were holding back because you thought it was privileged. And if the government disagreed, then you would have a hearing with a judge and then the judge would decide what was privileged. Then it would all be done in this kind of, you know, basically very civilized way, right? Um, and they don't do that now. Now, now almost regardless of who it is, they go in there with Kevlar vests on and weapons and just take everything and they, and they treat everybody as though they're Pablo Escobar. And, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes that conservatives make is, is in thinking that this is exclusive right. to Donald Trump and to, uh, you know, the people connected with the Trump administration. But actually, this is just something that, that has kind of evolved in, with federal law enforcement over the last 20 years. They've just started to do this willy-nilly. I think the Trump movement would be perfectly fine if the FBI was just raiding black liberation organizations. Yeah. But now that it's happening to them, you know, they're, they're up, in, they're up right. in arms over it. Right. I mean, so, so some of them have even said it, right? Like, you yeah. know, Greg, Greg Gutfield even he even said it on the air that we laughed when when people, liberal commentators said that, oh, they can do this to Muslims, they can do this to you. But, uh, you know, <laughs> now they are doing it to us. So, right. um, well, on this 
point I want to ask you, you had a piece recently about Biden's recent speech in Philadelphia, uh, and your article is called Biden Brings the War on Terror Home. And the way the Democrats now are talking about January 6th and Republicans, you know, they're literally calling them terrorists and insurgents. So as an example, I just want to play a clip from Mark Warner, uh, the senator of Virginia, who was uh, speaking recently on Face the Nation. 9-11 introduced to many Americans for the very first time this sense of vulnerability at home, and it launched the global war on terror. I wonder how vulnerable you think America is now. Are we paying enough attention to the Middle East and to Afghanistan? Well, Margaret, I remember, as most Americans do, where they were on 9-11. I was in the middle of a political campaign, and suddenly the differences with my opponent seemed very small in comparison. And our country came together. In many ways, um, we defeated the terrorists because of the resilience of the American public, because of our intelligence community. And we are safer, better prepared. Um, the stunning thing to me is here we are 20 years later, and the attack on the symbol of our democracy was not coming from terrorists, but it came from literally insurgents attacking the Capitol on January 6th. So I believe we are stronger. I believe our intelligence community has performed remarkably. I think the threat of terror has diminished. I think we still have new challenges in terms of nation state challenges, Russia and longer term, a technology competition with China. But I do worry about some of the activity in this country where the election deniers, the insurgency that took place on January 6th, that is something I hope we could see that same kind of unity of spirit. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, that was that was Biden's theme, right? We need to have unity, except for the 74 million people who voted for Trump, right? Um, it, you know, that language of threat, I, I don't know how you feel about it. I, 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 it makes me very nervous. I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not a Republican, but they are very specific in the language they use to describe these folks. Almost always, you know, they're almost always picking words that, correspond to specific laws that they may be thinking about prosecuting. You know, so the word insurrectionist is, you know, is a very specific term that that only applies to somebody who's, you know, committed a seditious act of conspiracy. You'll see that the the documents that are referred to in, you know, in the in the latest Mar-a-Lago case, there it's always referred to as national defense information, even in ordinary press treatments, right? Because national de defense information is what the charge relates to under the Espionage Act. And so when we talk about, you know, threats to democracy, threats to national security, the point of the piece that I wrote was that a lot of that language was used specifically over the years in the war on terror to justify everything from putting people in you know, the brig uh, in, uh, you know, like people, people like Jose Padilla or assassinating Anwar al-Awlaki. You know, if you can classify somebody as a threat to national security or as, a, as someone who poses an ongoing threat, you can do all kinds of things to those folks. And, you know, you take that in conjunction with the tweets by people like Michael Hayden. I don't know about you. I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. I, I I think they're they're sending a pretty strong signal. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's both scary, but it's also I can't also um, not note how I think funny it is because I do think that there are people inside 
for example, who are there rioting on January 6th, who actually do think that they are insurgents. So I think they feel actually flattered to be called insurgents because that's what they consider themselves to be. Even insurrectionists, but like but Mark Warner there calls them insurgents. Yeah, right. And insurgents means like you're taking up arms against the government to overthrow it. And the people of January 6th were to me cosplaying. I think they thought they were taking part in something really historic and huge. And really, it was, a to me, a, a riot uh, that just was very shambolic. And so I think they'll be flattered and actually emboldened to be called insurgents when in reality they're not. And insurgency really takes organization. It takes weapons. People on January 6th were pretty much entirely unarmed. Uh, there's no one arrested for any gun charges, as far as I know. So the idea that they're an insurgency is, to me, a joke. But yeah, the serious part comes in that this will be used I think to justify repression against um, anyone deemed to be an inconvenience. And for Democrats also, it allows them to basically not evolve as a party, not change their policies, but just constantly using fear mongering and saying that if you don't vote for us, the insurgents will take over. And there are reasons to be scared of these people because, you know, some of them believe in some really vile things. So it, to me, it's symbiotic that helps everybody in these two camps, just not everybody else, not the rest of the country. Also, didn't speaking of Jose Padilla, didn't um, Max Blumenthal and I did a stream where we reacted to the speech, but I f forget his name. You brought it up in your piece. The lawyer, the judge who he cites, Michael Ledig. Right. No, he, he said, but Biden cited, uh, cited Ledig saying, uh, talking about MAGA Republicans yeah. being a clear and present danger. Right. Being clear and which, present danger. Yeah. Which, which is funny because this guy is a right wing, like bad on civil liberties Bush era judge who Biden is citing as a moral authority. Well, yeah. And also the whole idea of a clear and present danger. I mean, it was the the basis for nearly a century of uh, crackdowns, mostly against socialists and right. communists. It was a big victory for liberalism uh, in general when they finally abandoned that standard with um, God, I forget the name of the case, but the one where they switched to, uh, you know, uh, Im imminent uh, incite incitement to imminent violence, right? That that's the new that's the new standard. But before that, you could outlaw somebody on the basis um, of there being a clear and present danger. You could you could prohibit, you know, employment in a state agency if they belong to the wrong uh, organization. So to label 74 million people a clear and present danger given the 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 background the legal background of that term again it's just it's just such a loaded thing to say and it it's really hard to know where they're going to go with that i mean you can go in a, in a variety of directions he tries to right like not to play devil's advocate he tr not really effectively but because he he tries to distinguish between people who voted for Trump, right? And MAGA people. He doesn't define it though. So he's he's trying to pretend that this isn't about all, he's definitely trying to pretend it's not about all, well, he's definitely making it clear it's not about most Republicans. And he talks about how they're decent Republicans, but what he doesn't really distinguish between are people who voted for Trump and the people who are MAGA Trump voters. Yeah. I, I... That distinct that distinction seems meaningless to me. I, I, I if I were a somebody who voted for Trump and I were worried that 
you know, there, there was going to be some kind of watch list right. that they might put MAGA Republicans on. I would assume that I'd be put being put on that list if I voted for Donald Trump. Right. I, I, I think I think the the notion that there's some kind of difference between people who voted for Trump and MAGA Republicans, I it, it, that that seems like a pretty thin distinction to me, especially since. Well, who else are they talking about? Like Lynn Cheney? I mean, who, who lost by 38 points in our own state is, you know, are they are they saying, oh, there's lots of good Republicans, except there's only six, right? Like who, who do, you know, who, who voted for some alternative to Donald Trump in the party. That, that seemed like a canard to me. No, it does. I'm just saying that even as they try to cover their asses, because I think they wouldn't want to say out loud that they're talking about. 70 million something voters they don't even carve out effectively the people that they're claiming to be talking about which i think makes it that much more ineffective or just that much more of a disaster because it seems like it's just going to cause people to dig in more because as you said why would someone be like oh you're not talking about me i just voted for trump but i'm not one of these MAGA republicans yeah i, I would think the it, the opposite is true right like the the vagueness of it right would would make anybody think well they could be talking about me right i mean i think all of us at one point or another have been accused of sympathizing with the, or, or or helping donald trump right, right? like wh wh whether it's by criticizing um you know joe yeah. biden or yeah. by doubting russiagate or whatever it is uh and you know there are lots of people out there who are sort of on varying degrees of unorthodoxy and after that speech i my first thought was there must be so many people who are thinking that that was pretty that was pretty harsh and maybe directed at me and what does that mean you know i, I very unusual and and i i compared it in 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 my article to donald trump's own convention speech in 2016 which was was very dark and it was very divisive and if you were watching it at home it was clearly not meant for a significant portion of the country right like he was he was talking about all the all the bad people um on one side and how all the good people were going were going to uh overcome the bad hombres that, i mean that was a menacing speech and i think this was kind of the same thing and to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great, huh? The people have been demanding uh, the return of Taibi, and we delivered. And thank you to delivered. Matt for taking yeah, the time. He's a very busy yeah. guy, and that was great. Very busy. So prolific. Just, I don't know how he turns out so much content. It's impressive. It's yeah, really, really, really impressive. Content. And his, his articles are always, like, you know, really well written and also full of pop culture references. He's got an amazing recall Jokes. memory. And yeah. for people who are into writing, he's he's one to follow and study. It's really, really yeah. impressive. All right. Well, make sure that you join the uh, Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com so you can hear the full interview with Taibi. And we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. 
Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 